Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Anadi Martel. Anadi is a physicist and electronics expert. He designs experimental instruments for use in the exploration of sound and light. He also acts as a consultant for special projects for diverse organizations such as IMAX, Cirque du Soleil, and the Metropolitan Opera of New York. His sound spatialization devices have been used throughout the world by artists of international renown as well as by NASA. For 40 years, he's carried out research on light and its applications, having developed new devices integrating light, sound, and touch. A number of these inventions have been patented, such as the light modulation process. During the seven years leading up to 2018, Anadi Martel was president of the International Light Association, a group of researchers exploring the therapeutic applications of light. The ILA acts as a bridge between leading scientists offering the latest research and the practitioners of diverse forms of light therapy. He is also the creator of the multisensorial therapy system called Sensora. Considered to be one of the most advanced systems in the world in this field, the Sensora combines audio, visual, and kinesthetic stimulation to produce a profound integrative experience, effective as therapeutic support in numerous clinical applications. Anadi is also the author of the book Light Therapies, a comprehensive guide to the therapeutic benefits of light and color and how they affect our physical and psychological well-being. I had a fantastic time speaking with Anadi. He's incredibly humble, knowledgeable, and open-minded. I believe his work and the work of his colleagues will truly be at the center of medicine in the future. So with all that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. So appreciative of your time today, Anadi. I've been looking forward to this for a really long time. I'd love to know how you sort of started getting into um, light and studying uh, light, particularly as a, a therapeutic agent. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm a physicist by training. So, of course, light is one of the um, main subjects of uh, exploration in physics. Um, even though the real nature of light remains mysterious to this day, <laughs> the greatest physicists have been uh, trying to understand and analyze its nature. So um, that was my original uh, um, interest in light. And then um, when I was a teenager, I became interested in, in meditation. And that brought me to a different angle a different way of looking at light. And uh, I ended up spending a few years in India studying meditation, and that opened up many uh, dimensions. And well, ever since, I've been trying to kind of bring together those two uh, visions, uh, the inner vision of light, which uh, everyone um, is familiar with, and that all civilizations since the dawn of uh, mankind have been uh, pursuing. I mean, light is synonymous with, with the highest forms of consciousness forever. We have this word enlightenment. So there's this whole dimension of light as a representation of consciousness, an inner uh, contact with the nature of light. 
and of course the physical nature of light because light is a completely physical phenomenon it's it's basically the main energy source that's powering our whole planet uh, most of our energy comes from the sun under the form of, of light so you can't get any more physical than that it, it's a truly basic component of the physical reality so i've always been fascinated by this duality of light in the sense that it's both a completely physical phenomenon and it's somehow linked with um, more subtle dimensions of consciousness and that tells a lot about uh, what you can do with light um, if you start to explore its potential for for healing and therapy which is what i've been specializing in for a number of years so as a physicist, um, you mentioned that there are a few issues with the way that we think about light from a physical perspective. Um, what 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 are those problems as far as the particle wave duality goes with light? And do we really know, you know, what light is at this point? We really know what anything is at this point. <laughs> I mean, the, the particle wave uh, duality, uh, of course, is a fundamental uh, mystery of light, but it, it's actually not uh, limited to light. All, all particles have this duality, even if you talk of electrons and um, baryons and, and material particles, they, they, they have the same duality. They can be viewed as a wave or as a particle. And it's really one of the fundamental mysteries of quantum mechanics. And still today, there, there is no... Satisfactory resolution to this mystery. I just got this. So, but of course, light is kind of the the most obvious um, example of this duality because there are um, many simple experiments where, where it shows up. I mean, the the uh, uh, the, the dual slits uh, line experiment is one of the most simple that you can perform, and still one of the most uh, powerful in the way it reveals. Uh, this mysterious uh, nature of light. And um, so the question remains open. As far as I can see, the, uh, some of the latest research seems to indicate that the true nature is um, the deepest form would be wave-like. And waves sometimes can agglomerate as packets or condense and, and then are perceived as particles. But um, this is just one simplification of a, a fundamental mystery, which probably is at the core of, of uh, what we are still missing in our understanding of, of, um, of physics as a whole. Uh, I'm sure that once we have a clear vision of the real nature of that uh, mystery there, we will be much farther ahead in the things like um, unitary um, physics theory and so on. There's um, a lot of um, spiritual people saying that we are we are light beings. You know, all of, all of our cells communicate with light, and at the most fundamental level, you know, we are made of light. Um, to what extent is that true, and and what how are cells communicating with light? Well, ever since Einstein, we know that um, energy and matter are equivalent. So light is pure energy, it's, it's a zero mass particle. Uh, so 
it's uh, our purest expression of what pure energy is, basically, in, in terms of physical reality. And um, because we are made of particles, um, material particles, there is this equivalence with um, uh, energy or light. So in, in this kind of very uh, practical, uh, technical aspect, you could say that uh, every matter is a, is a form of condensed light. But I think what people refer to when they talk about this idea of us being beings of light is probably refers to something else. Um, it, to me, it would refer to the fact that um, basically uh, we are conscious beings. And uh, it relates to the fact that consciousness is one of our fundamental uh, aspects beyond the body. Um, whether you talk about consciousness or light, they're kind of synonymous in, in many ways, in, in, in many formulations. So that, that's another aspect um, coming from there. And so all that is true. And the question is, of course, um, beyond a simple philosophical uh, point of view, what can you make of it? What, what, what does it mean in practice? Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful answer. And I, yeah, I think, like you said, it is a very, very open question, which is exciting, I think, for, um, for future generations to discover. Um, I've heard that John Wheeler uh, said once that if you look up at a star, then the photons that from that star that hit your eye would have never left that star unless you were there to perceive it. Um, I don't know if that's true, or I certainly couldn't understand the mathematics. But you know, first of all, is that true, and and how how is light having this sort of um, uh, non non uh, temporal uh, aspects to it? Well, I guess here you're referring to the um, non uh, um, uh, the, the fact that the the, uh, the non-locality of, of uh, light, but also of, of any particle, again, it applies to all physical, uh, all um, quantum uh, particles, whether you talk about light or, or matter. And um, it, indeed, uh, all recent experiments um, being performed with greater and greater precisions um, are confirming the non-local um, aspect of uh, quantum particles, non-local in the sense that um, there can be action, instant action, linking particles in different um, localities of space. Uh, if particles have been in, in contact, uh, if their waveforms uh, have been mixed at some point, even if you separate them by however far, uh, there the apparently remains some kind of link uh, between them, which is instantaneous, non-local. So now, does that tie in with consciousness? This is a, a basic um, mystery. And um, it's related to the fact that there's a whole school in quantum mechanics uh, that um, asserts that reality is... Uh, um, um, caused by the presence of consciousness in the sense that the, the quantum waveform collapses when an observer uh, perceives it. Um, and that would bring to the, the foreground the importance of consciousness in reality. 
Now, this point of view is uh, um, not universally recognized by physicists. It's one school of thought that, that uh, sees things in this way. But it's good to remember that actually nobody knows. The question is not resolved to this date. It, it remains part of the um, um, deepest mysteries of, uh, that, that physics is, is touching. And the same goes when, when we talk about consciousness. We, we kind of take for granted in our societies, our Western uh, societies, which are really science-based and, and materialistic, uh, and, and based on a materialistic viewpoint, reductionist materialistic viewpoint. Um, it's so much ingrained in our perception and our culture that we take it for granted that this is the way things are. We, we don't really question it. And this is why we have um, medicine, for example, is looking for um, um, intelligence and consciousness by analyzing the brain and neurons. Uh, it, from this point of view, it's clear that consciousness is a byproduct of the matter and the electrical fields uh, within your brain. There's no question. This is the point of view that, that's the accepted scientific point of view. And if you start talking about anything else, such as that consciousness might uh, exist separately from the brain, for example, uh, you are very quickly relegated to, to uh, some uh, non-reliable um, actor. So it's good to remember that things are not so clear-cut. There is a sizable proportion of scientists and, and among them, some of the greatest, actually, that uh, don't feel that the question is so clear-cut and that um, for whom consciousness might very well be the fundamental sub substratum of reality and matter is secondary. Matter is an epiphenomenon of this fundamental substratum that is consciousness. It's the reverse viewpoint from the materialistic viewpoint where, of course, matter is fundamental and consciousness is a byproduct of matter. And um, again, it's good to remember that the question is not at all resolved, uh, either one way or the other. And uh, it's good to keep an open mind about uh, these different options. So I think the, the great part about um, light as a, as a therapeutic agent used for human health is we don't need to understand it to know that it will, it does work, which is fantastic. So um, <laughs> What what has been your relationship to using light uh, as a therapeutic agent? Um, well, it's it's a long story. The the, the thing is that light uh, has so many dimensions to it. it it's so uh, fundamental to our uh, life and to our um, existence at so many levels that it can uh, touch us in many different ways. And because of that, there are a um, great number of modalities of using light for health, very different ways of using light. And that can sometimes bring confusion in, in people's mind because they will see these very different ways of uh, using light, different forms of light therapy. And there are, they seem to be so different that they don't have much relation. And um, so for example, you can use light for the body, um, light has a direct cellular effect. It will stimulate cellular metabolism. 
uh, it can help to repair cell DNA. That's the whole phenomenon of um, um, photobiomodulation that is now very well uh, documented and, and that's, um, that's being actively researched by thousands of scientists uh, currently. And that's relatively new. It's only in the past 20 years or so, 30 years, that, that science has been able to, to um, approach this aspect of light. So light brings energy to cells. You can use it to, to heal cells um, and so on. So that's one form of light therapy. Then you have this whole other connection of light with consciousness, with cognition, with uh, our visual perception. And that brings on a whole other world of using light and colors, because we all know that colors affect us in different ways. The perception of colors has a very subjective component to it, um, because it touches uh, mind. It touches our past, our memory, our experiences. Um, because of that, it can be used uh, in psychotherapy in powerful ways. That's a whole other way of using light. But that's actually more the, 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 the modality that I've been working with personally, that I've been developing with my instruments. And then there's another, still yet another modality um, that's um, part of our life now, and this that's connected with the uh, part of the optic nerve that is not related to vision. It's what's called the non-visual optic pathway. And that links directly our retina, our eye, with the core of the brain, the hypothalamus. And that completely bypasses the visual centers. And that particular part of the um, optic nerve um, has a direct influence on our hormonal balance, on our inner clock, on our circadian rhythms. Um, again, that's a whole other different way in which light can have a, a deep impact on our body, on our balance, on our equilibrium. Uh, so you see already these very different layers at which light can act. Yeah, and oh, sorry, continue. Oh, that's okay. Uh, I, I think you were asking how I got interested in that, and, and it, it gradually over the years I got in touch with different. Um, parts of these aspects and I've explored them. But originally, um, my interest was connected with, uh, um, again, meditation. I was curious to see if um, there were ways to use um, sound and light to um, bring more harmony, more inner harmony to deepen meditation, to, to um, heal um, psychic wounds in a way. So, I explored first uh, sound and then gradually I got interested in, in the brainwave aspect of things, um, measuring brainwaves, influencing brainwaves. And then the connection with light gradually emerged out of that because light is a powerful way to interact with brainwaves. And so gradually over the years, uh, I was brought to this. Wonderful. Um, I'd love to uh, go back and talk about the um, energetic portion or the, or the non-visual portion of the optic system mm -hmm. uh, and how it links to circadian <laughs> rhythms. Um, you know, we've spoken a little bit about the, the benefits of light, but what, what can be some of the downsides of the way we use light in the modern world? Well, obviously, if, if um, any form of therapy is powerful enough to affect your health and uh, bring some healing, 
uh, it means that it can also have detrimental effects if it's used in, in the wrong way or, or applied in, in an inverse way. So because light is so powerful, and it can lead to beautiful healing modalities, but it can also heal to disorders. Uh, again, in many different ways. You can, you can burn your skin, for example, if you have the wrong kind of UV light. Um, you can... Uh, um, um, the, the, the whole circadian uh, aspect of things um, has come to the forefront in the past uh, 20 years or so. Um, and now we understand much more clearly that um, uh, it's a certain part of the spectrum is uh, especially uh, relevant when we talk of the uh, hormonal balance influence, the suppression of melatonin and so on. And of course, it's the blue part of the spectrum that is significant there because the cells that are connected uh, in the retina to this non-visual optic pathway, the famous uh, um, uh, the IPRGCs are sensitive to the blue part of the spectrum. So it's specifically the blue colors, the, the blue photons that uh, have this uh, um, maximum effect on our inner rhythm. And the, the body evolved this mechanism as a, a beautiful way to synchronize our inner clock to the, the, uh, the daylight cycle. Uh, so this whole system is designed to perceive the bright uh, midday light of the sun and use that as a signal to uh, re-entrain our clocks, to tell our inner clock that this is midday, so you can organize all our inner rhythms according to that. And the problem naturally comes when we start to have a less natural lifestyle and we are not exposed to that bright midday light, as can easily be the case if we live uh, indoors. Um, or if we live in northern latitudes where, where this, the light diminishes in wintertime, um, what happens when you start to lose that uh, regular uh, reset, daily reset, is that your rhythm can drift. And um, it can seem relatively minor. It, of course, it can lead to s s sleep issues and, and uh, uh, stress and things like that. But if it goes on for years on end, it goes much deeper. It, it can bring um, uh, much more serious uh, disorders like diabetes, cancer, now, and this type of, of trouble now are linked to a, a um, disturbed circadian rhythm. And um, so this has led to the whole uh, uh, light modality called uh, bright light therapy. Um, of course, now everybody has heard of these uh, bright lights that you can use in the morning uh, to re-entrain your rhythm. But, uh, uh, and actually to such an extent that in people's mind, this is synonymous with light therapy. When somebody talks about light therapy, people automatically associate it with this bright light modality. Um, Whereas actually it's just one of the numerous forms of light therapies. Many forms of light therapies don't act through this uh, non-visual pathway, which requires intense light um, and use much lower levels of light, different colors than blue uh, to, to work. So again, it's important not to mix uh, the terminology. When we talk of light therapy, it's a generic, generic term it should mean all different modalities of using light. 
and the one that is specifically linked to the non-visual optic pathway should be called bright light therapy. Yeah, well, it's um, it's a very, very robust literature at the moment with the effects of modern lighting, particularly at night. Mm -hmm. uh, it's quite difficult to avoid in, in the modern world and all of our modern light bulbs are extremely highly blue lit. Um, is there anything we can do to sort of offset um, the effects of that blue at night? You know, I've got, you know, red globes and red glasses. Are those things mm -hmm. that people people can do to protect themselves? Sure. It's really a matter of um, um, education, getting to understand a little better the, the, um, the issue. And um, actually, it's a relatively new issue. It's never been uh, important until the last uh, few years, I would say, uh, less than five years because of a very simple fact, because we are now in the mix, in the midst of a technology change in our lighting. We're just moving from incandescent lights, which have been used for over a century since Edison's time. And we are shifting now to LED uh, uh, lights. And the, the LED lights um, bring to the, the fore these questions, because for the first time, uh, they can generate um, spectrums of, of uh, light emission that are very different from the natural spectrum of light. Um, it's, it's a happy coincidence that the incandescent light that we've been using for the past century are thermal sources. It's a hot filament glowing, and it's a very uh, similar physical um, uh, phenomenon to sunlight. The sunlight, the sun is also a hot globe of gas at the corona at the surface, about 5,000 uh, K. Um, and it generates light with this con broad continuous spectrum. Um, and if you look at the incandescent light, it's exactly the same black body uh, wide spectrum. It's just shifted a bit because the temperature is more towards 3,000 K than 5,000 as the sun, but basically its nature is, is similar. So. We've been using this artificial light that has a very similar spectrum to uh, natural light. And therefore, there's been no problems because we've just been uh, nicely fitting into the, the natural um, sensitivity of our um, organisms. Um, and so we've kind of gotten used to the idea that artificial light is fine. It's not, not an issue. And suddenly, now that LEDs um, come in the, the, the game, um, we kind of take them for granted and, and don't really um, look more closely. And of course, it's leading to a number of problems which are now coming to the forefront uh, of the, the mainstream culture. So everybody now has heard of the, the issues in blue light circadian rhythm. And uh, so fortunately, things are starting to change. Um, because, as you mentioned, LED light bulbs often have an excess of blue, but there is no necessity for this. Uh, technologically, you can very well make LED uh, light bulbs which don't have this excess of blue. It's just a matter of, of where you put the uh, emphasis 
Uh, originally, when this started, people put the emphasis on energy saving. That was the whole uh, reason for being for these, uh, these LED light bulbs, because they consume a lot less energy. And uh, economics, they have to be cheap. So people have been, engineers have been looking for the maximally energy, energetically effective uh, spectrums. And it so happens that those are the ones that have a lot of blue. And the focus has been there in the beginning. And now that we are becoming aware of the risks associated with that, um, the culture is changing and it's, it's gradually seeping down to manufacturers. And now you can very well choose uh, the temperature of the light bulbs that you buy in, in the hardware stores. And one very basic thing to do is to use only lower color temperature bulbs uh, in the home, like uh, below 3000K, like 2700K, something like that. What's called a uh, soft uh, light or, or um, um, warm, uh, warm white and so on. And if you do that already, you will cut a lot of the, the, the problems because um, we use, of, of course, these, these light bulbs are used mostly at night. And uh, this is when an excess of blue will start to disrupt your um, circadian rhythm. Um, it, it also goes the other way. Some people are, um, trying to use uh, more bluish white, uh, cool white with higher temperature in the daytime so that it's more aligned to daylight and it helps to, to keep you awake, stimulate you and, and, and so on. So this is an interesting aspect. It's what's called the human-centric lighting where you can vary the, the color temperature of your lighting depending on the time of day. And hopefully this will eventually become standard. It will become the normal thing to do. But in the meantime, the very simple basic thing is to only use lower color temperature light bulbs in your home. There's another whole other aspect that, that is lesser known uh, that's related to light noise and that's completely independent from the spectrum um, of, the color of the light bulb. And it's the fact that LED technology um, often generates a high amount of light noise uh, Light noise is, simply refers to the fact that the light that is emitted by the, the bulb is not perfectly stable. It can contain high frequency uh, uh, components that are not visible. Your eye cannot perceive um, any rhythm faster than about 50 or 60 Hertz. That's the flicker fusion frequency. So engineers have been making light bulbs which might flash at, the, at high frequencies and because you don't perceive it, they concluded that it's fine and it's cheaper to make. So we end up with light bulbs that often emit uh, high light noise. And it's becoming more and more clear that this is not so innocuous. Uh, it actually has detriment detrimental effects, even if you don't perceive it consciously. Um, you, you, it can lead to migraines and... and um, um, uh, eye tension in, in people who are especially sensitive and even for the rest of us who may not be so sensitive this kind of uh, constant low level stress in the light source kind of accumulates it, it kind of uh, adds to our other environmental stresses like radio waves and chemical pesticides so if you add again the light 
unhealthy light component, pulsating light, it all adds up to um, what we see in our societies uh, in terms of chronic illness and all kinds of disorders which medicine has trouble pinning down because they, they don't have a single cause. They're just the accumulation of stressors over years. So all that to come back to the fact that, um, again, technologically, there's no necessity for these LED light bulbs to emit noise. You can perfectly make them uh, with very low noise, very clean light. It's just a little more expensive. It might be a little less energy efficient, but uh, it, it's well worth the, um, the small differences. Um, the, the, with the spectrum aspect, the blue color aspect, it's easy to see it. You can see whether the light is bluish or more yellow, but with the light noise, it's hard to perceive and, and you need an instrument to um, measure it or, or um, a simple ways to translate light noise into sound uh, because your ear will be sensitive to these high frequencies. And that, that's what I've done with a small instrument here, the, the light B that converts light into sound. So you immediately, very easily can check the light sources in your home and just discard noisy um, light bulbs. And if you go to the hardware store, you'll see that a number of them are clean. Maybe from what I've seen lately, maybe half or third to half of the, the light bulbs are, are fairly um, stable. So um, that's another aspect of unhealthy light. You're referring, is this colloquially termed the flicker effect of, of lights? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's, I, think, I think it was first, um, that's how Meniere's disease was discovered with helicopter pilots because the blades would flick past and people were getting migraines and vertigo-like symptoms. So it's mm -hmm. certainly not innocuous. And what I usually do to check is to get the slow-mo camera on my phone and, and then you can see the lights turning on and off. Uh, quite That's a good technique as well. Yeah, yes. yeah. so um, it, it's very, very pervasive and in all screens as well to save energy, they'll turn on and off. So um, yeah. I know there are ways you can, if you have your um, uh, screen light up the whole way, it flickers less and then you can get apps to bring it down in another way. But um, this this frequency effect of, of light um, makes me think about um, brain waves and, and sound as well. Uh, you mentioned before that you're, uh, you've done work with brainwave entrainment um, with Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative conditions. Uh, how, do you, how do you use light in, in those situations? Well, in the same way that um, light can be um, healing or uh, health risk, uh, it's the same thing about flicker. Um, uh, flicker is, is a, a um, universal phenomenon. I mean, ev everything vibrates. And um, again, it, it can be used as a healing modality or it can, it can be very uh, damaging. So it just depends on the, the, it's a question of frequency and it's a question of intensity and it's a question of, of rhythm, how long you're exposed to it. Uh, so it, it's, it's not a simple issue. But um, when you start, um, when you talk about rhythms that fall below the range of the, what the eye can perceive, flicker fusion frequency, um, it happens that 
those frequencies, like below 50 hertz or so, uh, correspond to the natural frequency at which our neurons uh, fire. And um, there's this miraculous synchronization, this resonance of our billions of neurons, uh, each one emitting a very tiny electrical charge. They, they fall in sync, naturally, and they emit together a, a, a global electric field, which we perceive as brain waves. And so the very functioning of our brain is linked to these, these uh, various frequencies. And of course, we, we now know that you can associate different mental states with different uh, brainwave frequencies. We've all heard of alpha uh, waves, which are associated with relaxation, beta waves, which are associated with mental activity, um, delta waves, which are deep sleep, um, so when you start to uh, work with frequencies that fall within that range from between about two hertz to, to uh, uh, 60 or so, I mean, it, it, you can discuss what's the limit because gamma brain waves uh, can be extended to uh, 100 to 200 hertz or, or possibly even more. But that frequency range can be used to interact with brain waves. And, um, that's true, a very natural phenomenon of resonance. And when you're exposed to any um, sensorial stimulus that uh, has a frequency that, that flickers in a range that um, is within the range of our own natural biorhythm, <laughs> our biorhythms will have a tendency to fall in sync with that external stimulus. Um, and that works with all senses, basically. It works with vision, it works with sound, it works with touch. Um, so it's just this natural resonance uh, action. And so that, that has brought uh, the whole field of audiovisual stimulation, where you will use um, flickers of light and sound uh, to try to uh, help to balance the brain, to bring it towards a healthier state, or you can use it in neurofeedback when you create a feedback between a measurement of your brain waves and some kind of external uh, stimulus that you can sense, you can create a loop and use that for training. So there are many, many very interesting modalities based on that. And light is a beautiful way to work uh, with this because uh, vision is really our foremost sense. Um, the majority of our sensorial input comes from vision. So it's really the main gateway to influence the brain. So if you have, if you have light that flickers in those ranges, it will have a powerful impact. And, and everybody perceives this. Uh, I mean, everybody who's been in a, in a discotheque with strong strobe lights uh, knows how powerful this effect is. It really grabs you and it can actually be dangerous. It, it, it can be overwhelming. Uh, and indeed it is dangerous for people who are um, um, have a photosensitivity because it can even trigger epileptic seizures. Uh, so it's a powerful phenomenon. And when properly handled, it, it, it can um, be a beautiful therapeutic modality. And uh, there are now a vast number of studies uh, that have been done on different ways to apply this for all kinds of things, whether it's uh, uh, to help kids with autism, ADHD, 
uh, with uh, um, to help with addictions, to help with um, Parkinson's. There are so many uh, uses of this um, brainwave audiovisual stimulation and modality. Yeah, you. Um, I believe you developed a system called Sensora, um, which employs uh, sound and and light and color therapy as well. Um, this is something that I've been extremely interested in recently, which is the effect of color on uh, our psychological well-being. Um, you know, is it kind of like um, music where people will respond differently to different colors? There's no um, you know, there's no one size fits all, like red does this, blue does this. Um, so how, how, do you, how do you understand how to use colour in, in a setting like that? I wish it was uh, so clear-cut and easy. Actually, when I started this, this work, I, I, it, it was my assumption that this would have been worked out long ago. The effects of each colour would be precisely known and reproducible. And um, unfortunately, it turns out not to be the case. And again, because light is such a multi-dimensional uh, phenomenon, it acts on us at all levels, the body, the mind, the, the, the brain. It's not surprising that different colors have different effects on these different layers of our, um, our being and, and our organism. So there's no reason why the same colors should have the same effects on the body, for example, as they will have on, on the mind and the brain. It's perfectly obvious when you think about it that colors could have different effects depending on where you apply them. And so it, it's the case indeed when you start to work with colors, because again, just in terms of effects on the brain, there are numerous different brain centers, uh, each with their own different sensitivity. And actually, the, the information of color that comes through the, uh, um, the optic nerve uh, is transmitted basically to all areas of the brain, not just to the, uh, the visual uh, centers in the back. If you look at the anatomy of the optic nerve, it has many different components, uh, apart from the one going to the uh, visual uh, centers. There's a component going directly to the, the, the core of, of the um, brand, the, the, there's a component going to um, um, different, the amygdala, and so, so there are links, direct links between the eye and all these different areas of the brain, and each one, um, most of these links carry the full color information, uh, so color just basically reaches many different um, layers of the brain. Um, so it can act sometimes in an unconscious way and deep unconscious in our emotional response when you work, when you touch the amygdala and, and these centers. It can work in a very conscious way when you touch the, the visual centers and the cortex, and it can be linked to memories, to traumas. Um, it can touch in ways that will affect directly our inner rhythms like the, the breathing, heartbeats, uh, heart rhythm also will be affected by colors. Uh, so when you start to analyze the effect of colors, you have to be very, very um, uh, discerning as to what layer of the body or the mind you're trying to connect with. And, um, and this, also, this is also why it's quite confused. I mean, there is no, many people have been trying to study the effects of colors. And if you look at the literature, uh, different clinical studies, 
will come up with completely different results for the same colors. And so the tendency has been to conclude that there's nothing there. It's just random and, and uh, it's not a valid uh, um, medical modality. Um, it, it's not at all the case. It's just that you have to be uh, to understand more deeply the different uh, layers and where you are having an effect. So that leads to all kinds of different light therapy modalities. And in my book, I list a number of them. For example, uh, there's a section where there's uh, um, about 20 different uh, light um, color therapy systems. Um, and each one has their own specialty, their own way of, of uh, working. And when it's a well-designed system that's self-coherent, it usually has beautiful therapeutic results. And again, the, the, the meaning of colors may be different from one system to the other. Yeah, that um, it's something I've been interested in because I thought, you know, I've, I've, I've been wearing these at, at night, you know, the, the red glasses, and I, I, I was thinking, I wonder what the, um, the filtering of all of those frequencies, you know, below 550 would be, could be doing to me psychologically. I've certainly not felt any ill effects, but is there a potential for some people to have um, psychological effects from, from wearing filtered glasses like that? Oh, definitely. I mean, it is a form of therapy in itself uh, to wear colored glasses. You can find uh, on the market uh, these sets of uh, glasses which, which cover all colors of the, the rainbow. And it's beautiful experimentation to, to just put one specific color on uh, and immediately your world is transformed. You perceive things differently. And so it's clear that, that these colors have a deep impact on, on um, our inner perception, our psychology, and, and, and so on. So indeed, if, if you do this on the long term, if you were wearing, for example, a specific color for, for hours or days, it would probably have a, um, um, an impact on, on your being. So the whole... Um, goal of chromotherapy or using colors for healing is to understand what uh, if you are missing some colors um, if some which colors would be the best for you at a given moment and then to provide find ways to uh, give you those colors in the purest form possible and again there are many ways uh, to do this um in the book, you also talk a little bit about um, acupuncture meridians and how, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, some group in Korea had discovered that they act somewhat like fiber optic cables. You can shine a light down one meridian and then you'll see a light pop out at another meridian. Is that, um, you know, what, what are the implications of, of findings like this, you know, these super highways of light throughout the body? Well, then you're touching on the whole field of energy medicine, which is um, a vast um, unknown field, uh, which is taking more and more um, importance, actually. It's still not uh, uh, still secondary in, in mainstream medicine, but it's gradually and surely growing. And many of us working in this field are convinced that it is really the medicine of the future eventually. Medicine will be um, energy-based more than and, uh, chemically based, as is our current 
drug-oriented medicine. Uh, because with uh, energy interactions, you, you can have a much more direct um, effect on cells, on, on the energy fields that, that regulate our whole organism. Uh, but, but that's a whole other subject in itself. Uh, in terms of light, um, light is, again, the purest form of energy that we can work with. And so it goes, it, it's obvious that uh, it, it can be used to interact with our own uh, energy fields. Now, one of the most uh, direct ways to do this is to link uh, light with acupuncture, as you just mentioned. So there are techniques such as color puncture or chromatotherapy, uh, which uh, apply colors on uh, meridians and acupuncture points. Uh, so these are very interesting uh, techniques. They, they, they kind of amplify the effects of acupuncture. Um, and it also ties into the whole question of biophotons that you, you kind of um, alluded to. Um, it seems um, more and more clear that uh, light plays um, a key role in the energy exchanges inside our body. And um, not just any kind of light, uh, but uh, very special kind of photons that have been termed biophotons uh, by um, Pop, one of the early main researchers in this field, Fritz Albert Pop. And um, these biophotons are generated by each of our cells. They are regularly emitted and absorbed. And you can measure them, you can detect them with, if you have uh, extremely sensitive instruments. Uh, you can analyze them, see what spectrum they have, what, what's their rhythm. So there's a whole field of exploring these, the nature of this light that's literally being, being emitted by our body. Uh, that is still in, in its infancy. But uh, again, we can assume that it will be part of the medicine of the future. Uh, because these photons seems, seem to be telling a lot by their nature, by their not only the spectrum, but also the coherence level, they seem to carry information, not only about the body, but also about consciousness itself, uh, which is where it becomes very interesting, very uh, um, fascinating, actually. So that, again, that's a whole other subject. Um, biophotons are very, very um, um, faint. It, it's uh, It's invisible to the naked eye. It, it, we're talking about only a few photons being emitted per second per, per square centimeters. So it's completely beyond the threshold of our uh, visual perception. Uh, you need uh, uh, very, very sensitive photomultipliers to detect them. But there are now such sensors uh, where you can image the, the biophotons and, and uh, it's, um, it's really a fascinating field. And so it, it points to the way where light is not just a vector for energy. For example, when you, with photobiomodulation, light is really used as an, a raw energy source to bring energy to your cells. Uh, with biophotons, it indicates that light also can be a vector for information. Uh, it, it can really trigger a deep um, uh, order within our cells in ways that are not yet uh, well understood. Uh, so it, it really opens the, the gates to a way of healing with light where it won't be only color or uh, energy, the amount of, of light, but also its quality 
it may be uh, the, the rhythm at which it's delivered or, or the, the polarization at which it's delivered. There are so many different aspects to light that can be um, influenced. Uh, again, that's part of the medicine of the future. Yeah, um, it's it's something that I, I think is going to really be, you know, maybe to the later part of my life be be used um, as a therapeutic agent. And, and, you know, I don't know if we really understand the uh, implications of, uh, of these ultra-weak um, photon emissions from humans, but I, I learned from this from uh, Roland Van Wick's book um, that you mentioned in your book, um, mm-hmm. how yeah. uh, Fritz Albert Pop used um, onion sprouts to determine that they were emitting photons of some sort. Um, does this have, you know implications in you know the way that humans interact you know we were shooting i believe it's uvc the spectrum of the of these photon emissions correct me if i'm wrong on that but um you know might might be a reason why people have a tendency to like holding hands and you know um and you know kissing and and being close to each other to sort of get those um to get those uh, biophotons the same way that these onion plants were using them to sprout? Mm-hmm. Um, well, just to, to, um, to start with, it, um, biophotons are not uh, restricted to UV. They, they, they really cover the whole spectrum of visible light as well. Um, and um, But uh, they... they that had originally been, it was a source actually, the discovery of biophotons started with this measurement early in the 20th century of um, these uh, uh, onion roots, because of course, photomultipliers didn't exist back then. So it was an indirect way to measure its effect. Um, so uh, yes, of course, you could assume that uh, uh, this exchange of biophotons will happen between people and um, uh, naturally, it's, it's part of the non-verbal communication that we all know uh, exists. Yeah, that's um, that's a beautiful idea. I, I hope it continues to be researched as well because I want to know more about it. Um, I, I know on, on the back of your book, there's a little paragraph from Gerald Pollack. Um, I'd love to know your thought um, because obviously light is a, or water is a great interactor with light. And you know our bodies are mostly water. So, you know what what are your what are your thoughts about the interaction between light and water? Um, well, I'm, I'm sure Gerald uh, probably went in detail in, in, in this aspect of things. But one thing that that's um, fascinated me is that the um, up till recently. It was assumed that the, the main source of uh, the effect of photobiomodulation, uh, this cellular metabolism uh, influence of light, was related to one specific um, enzyme, the, the cytochrome uh, um, oxidase that, that uh, was discovered by uh, Tina Karu in, in the 1990s. Um, so the, the, this whole respiratory chain happening in each our cells in the mitochondria that converts um, glucose into ATP, the energy 
units that is used by all our cells. Um, and this cycle, there's one particular step near the, the end of it um, where this enzyme um, converts is part of the chain and the conversion and this enzyme that was Carol's discovery is directly uh, stimulated by um, certain frequencies of light, especially in the, the deep red and near infrared part of the spectrum. Uh, and that's been understood to be one of the main action vectors for photobiomodulation. Um, so the, the way that the water question ties in it is, is that it might be a second vector through which light stimulates this respiratory chain. Um, because as Gerald has explained, uh, light will uh, create this fourth phase. It will create a polarization within the cell membrane and it will change the uh, viscosity of water. And th there is this, um, um, some incredible uh, phenomenon happening within the mitochondria, which are very dependent on the um, viscosities of water. And so when you understand that light can change that viscosity, you have another way in which light will accelerate this respiratory chain in a significant way. So now it's like a second mechanism, separate mechanism through which photobiomodulation could be explained through the effect it has on, on water, the, the ATP synthase uh, uh, rotors uh, that, that will work more efficiently in uh, um, water that's been irradiated with light. So it, it simply again makes us um, better understand uh, what are the mechanisms that, that, that explain why light would be so uh, beneficial um, for cells? Yeah, it, it appears to me that, um, you know, evolutionarily we would have been outside all the time, you know, bathed in infrared light pretty much from the moment the mm -hmm. sun came up to the moment the sun came down. And, and we miss out on a lot of that um, once, once we step indoors you know, there's still a lot of infrared coming off every, everything, but not nearly the amount that you'd get from the sun. Um, so do you use uh, infrared lights in, in your house to supplement, um, you know, the light that you may be missing out on? Um, I certainly do. Yeah. Yes. Sure, sure. You can use, of course, uh, uh, photobiomodulation devices. There are many available on the web. Uh, but one of the things that I do also is... is uh, uh, use uh, uh, halogen lighting as much as I can because naturally incandescent and halogen lights have a, a large proportion of the energy emitted as near infrared. That's exactly why they've, uh, they've been replaced by LEDs. The whole goal was to cut their energy wastage. And for engineers, this infrared part of the spectrum emitted by these light bulbs is wastage. They couldn't see any function to it. So again, it's a matter of not properly properly understanding the biology of our interaction with light uh, because this uh, infrared and near infrared is actually essential to our health. And so by removing it from uh, light bulbs, now we are indirectly creating other health issues um, so, personally, I consider that 
uh, yes, perhaps it will take a bit more energy to light up my allergen lights, but as long as they are available, I will um, uh, prefer them. Uh, in fact, in, in a northern country like uh, Canada, where I live, uh, most of the year we have to heat the house. So this so-called wastage isn't really wasted. It just contributes to the heat in the house. So um, again, it's a matter of, of balance. I feel the, the, the slight gain that you would can get in terms of energy energetically, is it worth the impact on health and all the health issues that it causes um, all the way to our health systems, hospitals, uh, which will be... Um, um, th this lack of infrared will have all kinds of, of detrimental effects. Yeah, ab absolutely. I um, I worry about the hospitals a lot because they're they're probably the worst places for for lighting as as far as you can go. So that's a that's a real problem. Um, I've never had a satisfying answer for this question. Maybe you can help me out. Um, what's the difference between infrared light and heat? Um, well, heat can take many forms. Heat is basically, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's a thermodynamics concept. It's related to the uh, level of uh, activity of uh, particles. And it can be quantified as, as a cloud of moving uh, gas particles. That's how temperature is defined. Uh, so, but this activation of, of a gas uh, particles can be done in a number of ways. It can be done with light, can be done with pressure, it can be done in all kinds of ways. So light or infrared light is one of the ways that can be converted into heat. And um, the thing is that infrared is, is quite a vast uh, part of the spectrum. You have near infrared and you have far infrared. It goes up to, uh, um, I think, 10 or 20,000 uh, nanometers. Uh, all the way down. So the the part that is that seems to be uh, relevant in terms of photobiomodulation is the near infrared part, like up to a thousand or twelve hundred nanometers. Uh, and beyond that, you will still get a heat phenomenon from the far infrared. This is how sonars work, uh, but they will not act in the same way on cells. They, they will act more in indirect ways by stimulating certain blood circulation. Uh, and things like that. But the, if you want to get the really photobiological effects of, um, of a stimulation, you need the near-infrared part of the spectrum, which is not necessarily linked to heat. It's not that hot. Right. Okay, that makes a lot more sense to me. Um, there's a Here in Australia, lots of people, most people wear sunglasses, and sunglasses here are quite often polarized. Um, polarized light is very unnatural. Uh, probably does. I'm not sure if it exists uh, from any natural source. But I don't often hear people talking about the potential dangers of polarizing light and just having you know um, one orientation of, of of waves going going through into the into your eyes. Uh, mm. do, do we know any of the detrimental effects that that could have? It's a very interesting question. Unfortunately, I, I don't think that much is known about the, the effects of polarization on health. For one thing, it, it doesn't go very deep. Uh, the, the, within a couple of millimeters, I believe, 
polarization is, is lost, the photons are scattered. So it doesn't have a deep seated effect. Um, it, it's of course used in sunglasses to because it helps with glare for, for vision. <clears throat> now, whether it has negative effects, it's uh, uh, there's no nothing that I've heard directly in this respect. Uh, but I have heard of uh, positive effects of polarization. There are light therapy modalities that are based on um, um, effects of polarized light. Um, because, for example, it's known that uh, within cells, many um, aspects uh, of um, biomolecular um, activity can respond to polarization of light. And so you can stimulate certain uh, metabolic aspects specifically with polarized light. So that, that some um, healing modalities are based on that. For example, the bioptron instruments uh, use polarizing filters. Um, so, and then there are different forms of polarization, which probably have different effects. Uh, there's what's called a hyperpolarized light, uh, which is uh, also a very interesting thing um, developed by a Russian uh, physicist, where you mix polarization of, of photons, of a, a number of photons, uh, in many different directions, so that they have a certain proportion that's related to the Fibonacci series. And he relates that to the fact that within cells, many structures are also related to the Fibonacci series. And then when you would polarize light in this way, particular way, you would establish a, a much more compatibility with the, the, the cells. So these are kind of uh, experimental uh, fields currently, which are not, um, there's no definite answer, but there are all kinds of tantalizing uh, possibilities. That's fascinating. I wasn't I wasn't aware of um, the the use of um, polarization and hyperpolarization like that. Uh, that's um, that'll be an awesome field to keep up with. Mm. You mentioned before that um, the act of consciousness interacting with these uh, wave particle dualities sort of causes them to you know pick one or, or the other. Um, I've heard that the reason that, that we perceive all the way from UV to infrared and not beyond is because the UV and infrared portions play quantum roles in, um, in the cellular processes of the body. Uh, I think it's called the quantum Zeno effect or something like that. Is there any truth to that, to saying we don't <clears throat> see UV and infrared because if we saw them, then their quantum effects would be um, damaged, I, I guess? I've never heard of this particular um, theory, so I can't really comment on it. Right. But what I know is that the reason why we don't see infrared and ultraviolet is very simple. It's because our visual system evolved under sunlight for billions of years. So it's finely tuned to the spectrum of visible light uh, emitted by the sun. And uh, so if you look at the sensitivity of our eyesight, it's right on the spectrum of the sun. So the infrared and, and ultraviolet by definition are the parts that are outside this range. And so my understanding is that this range that we're perceiving is simply a reflection of the, the light emitted by our sun. So I don't think you have to bring into account these uh, esoteric quantum effects. 
to explain why we have this particular spectrum of vision. But again, I've not heard of that. Either. Right. Okay. All right. Awesome. Um, there's uh, quite a growing number of um, people that are looking into uh, near-death experiences and they they almost always include some sort of, you know, uh, ethereal light um, that, you know, it seems common uh, across many cultures and, and almost uh, always exists in these near-death experiences. What do you think the the nature of the light in these near-death experiences or, or even um, sort of out-of-body, maybe psychedelic experiences as well. Why, why does light play such a large role there? I wish I knew, Cameron. It's, it's a very deep question. It, it's, a, it's a question I've been pondering for years. And um, I don't think there's any simple answer. It, it's, again, related to this uh, innate connection that we have between light and the highest forms of consciousness. Why would that be? Um, is it purely sensorial, just because we associate seeing with having a clearer uh, understanding of uh, or our surroundings? That's one possible explanation. Does it have a deeper meaning in the sense that photons um, in, it, it might be more uh, closer than, to consciousness than uh, um, the rest of our reality? Um, in, this, in the relativistic sense, I mean, we know since um, uh, restricted relativity that um, if you move at the speed of light, time stops and space is compressed to nothing. So photons, of course, live in that reality for, for, for light. In a way, time doesn't exist, space doesn't exist. So you can make that link between uh, consciousness because... We also associate consciousness with uh, absence of space and time. It's beyond space and time. When uh, if you go in, in deeper meditation states, you you perceive that that uh, aspect of, of consciousness that is beyond space and time. So is there a link there with, with the very nature of light and the nature of consciousness? That's another way of looking at this. But whatever it may be, it, it to me it. it um, it can be used in a very practical and beautiful way. And that's what I do in the Sensora. I, I try to reproduce light fields that uh, establish a connection with that higher aspect of light in the sense that it connects us with uh, um, uh, deeper layers uh, within us, deeper layers of consciousness. Um, um, in my feeling, this way of working with light is maybe the deepest and most powerful way of, of uh, healing is through that, that aspect of the nature of light. And in the sensora, that's what I've been striving to achieve. It's a kind, you can view it in a way as a kind of bridge between uh, an astral world, the world that we see in our dreams, that, that's in a way beyond physical reality, but bring it to the physical world where you can use it in practice in a reproducible way and use it uh, with people to help them to connect with this other reality where they can really get in touch with uh, a wider space within themselves where healing happens naturally. So it's a bit in, in a nutshell, the, the intent behind this technology there. 
Now, in order to achieve that, to create these light fields, uh, there's a number of properties that, that you, you want to look for. Um, you want, um, first, you want to use very pure colors because these are the, the, the colors that touch us most deeply, uh, both in psychological terms and in uh, biological terms, the pure uh, light sources, meaning the most monochromatic it is, uh, the more impact it has, that, that, that's uh, well established. Then um, you will want to use light, which uh, may interact also with brain waves, so which has subtle um, pulsations embedded within it. Um, you may want to use light, which fluctuates uh, gently, uh, so that it's more organic, more natural. If you use a fixed color, uh, you kind of restrict the fields of consciousness, whereas if you have an open uh, moving field, then it again brings up uh, different things. So there are many different aspects in, in the way you will create specific light patterns to work in that direction. And so that, that's what I've been doing with uh, the Sensora. I use arrays of low frequency oscillators up to um, uh, 60 of them in, in the, the current version that I work with. So we have all these oscillators that are working together in, in uh, resonant ways and that create these beautiful um, flowing light patterns that have specific frequencies embedded in them. And so depending on what you're trying to achieve in therapeutic terms, you will work with um, particular parts of the spectrum, both in terms of color and in terms of uh, low frequency uh, resonances that are part of the field. That's uh, that's amazing. The the more I read about Sensora, the more I, I really wanted to to have a go and, and see what it was all about. Uh, are there are there ways we can you know sort of mimic the effects of the Sensora at home? Like, are there any um, systems that that people could get, or you know anything that we could try to sort of use use light therapeutically and and, and see how we go with it? Well, the Sensora is, is kind of designed for a professional therapist, so it's a large, expensive installation. But um, exactly for the, the purpose that you just described, I, I boiled down the technology to a smaller object that you can put in your home. It's, it's the, the sensosphere that you see in the back there. Uh, the, the light, of course, doesn't come much through the, the, the video camera here, but um, it... it it's designed to emit a smaller version of, of light patterns that uh, I've evolved for Sensora. So it's a kind of beautiful harmonizing object that you can have in your home. Uh, so that's one possibility. Um, I'm actually working on a even smaller version here that you can hold in your hand. That's called Sensor Light. And again, that has an array of low frequency oscillators creating gentle pulsations. Um, and the sensor light is, is um, nearly ready. It's still uh, at the prototype stage, but within a few months, it'll be available. Well, I've been, I must admit, I've been mesmerized by that this, this, this whole time. Um, the Sensora, is it an audio-visual experience? Like, is, so there's music as well, is that correct? Yes, um, in the beginning, I was working, experimenting with sound together with uh, my therapist uh, colleague, Ma Premo. Um, so 
I created instruments to create sound fields that then we could see the impact they had on, on uh, a form of therapy that uh, we were practicing. Then as, again, as I mentioned, I've become interested in brainwaves and then in light. And then it became obvious that we com when you combine these senses together, you can go much deeper. And um, that's actually been validated in a number of, of um, studies. Um, for example, the, the recent studies uh, working with um, gamma brainwaves, you just mentioned the, the link with Alzheimer's. It seems that gamma brainwaves could be especially beneficial to uh, um, uh, reduce the amyloid plaque load in, in the brain that is uh, um, um, affected by Alzheimer's. Uh, just pulsing light or sound at this, this frequency range, uh, 40 hertz is what's been studied most, um, seems to have a direct effect in, in decreasing the amyloid plaque on the brain, which is quite remarkable. Uh, this is very recent research from uh, Dr. Tsai, uh, the Harvard Medical School in, in the last three, four years. Um, an interesting study that, uh, that came out recently uh, compared the effects of just that phenomenon when you do it with either just with the sound or with light. And when you do it with both, it's demultiplied. Like when you do it with sound or light, you will have this effect on the particular part of the, the cortex linked to that sense, auditory cortex or visual cortex. But if you do it on both together, you see that very quickly the uh, effect spreads to other cortical areas. So when it's multisensorial, you seem to reach uh, deeper and, and more numerous areas of the cortex. It, it goes beyond the, the limits of the particular sense that, that you're stimulating. So in Sensora, early on, we, we perceived this intuitively. We could see that we, when you combine sound and light, it, it had a more powerful effect. And in fact, we added a third sense, uh, which we feel is also uh, a key to, to um, effective uh, and therapeutic um, effects. And it, it's the sense of uh, uh, kinesthetic perception. Uh, and the way we do this is through a special chair or table, which has an array of sound transducers converting um, sound into low frequency uh, vibrations that you can perceive kinesthetically. You perceive it as a gentle massage on the surface of your skin. And so that third sense to touch proprioception is another way to reach the brain, which is also very powerful. And in Sensora, we mix all three together. And uh, this, uh, this is where you can have the, the um, deepest impact. Yeah, that's um, that's awesome. I, I the more I read about it, the more I just wanted to hop in, hop in one and 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 see. But um, I think that would be you know a great way to to finish this off. I I recommend everyone get get your book Light Therapies. It's probably the best book I've got on light, and I've got a lot of books on light. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for coming. You know that, by the way, there, there are a couple of sensoras in Australia currently. Where, um, whereabouts are they? One in Adelaide mm -hmm. and one in the Perth area that's just been uh, installed recently. Wow, are these are these with um, are these in practices? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm, hopefully, hopefully more come 
more come out out my way to New South Wales, that would be great. And I, I think I think more and more practitioners are starting to see that um, this stuff really works, and um, oftentimes it it works very very powerfully. So um, yeah, thanks so much for for coming on and discussing your work. Um, hopefully, um, more people uh, get involved with the stuff that that you've been doing. And yeah, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. The, the, it, it's exciting times because uh, just in the last couple of years, there's been uh, new um, studies made with the Sensora, which are very positive. There's been a study made with um, people with chronic pain and a study made with people with depression, uh, where we, we, we can establish more clearly the, the uh, beautiful effects that you can have with this type of uh, approach. So indeed, as is. Uh, now is the time for these new um, technologies to really spread more to the mainstream and to become commonplace, really. Hopefully it will happen in the next few years. Fingers crossed. All right. Thanks so much, man. Cheers. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope this episode was enjoyable and insightful. Please keep up to date with the podcast. I've got a bunch of guests lined up for the next few months, so make sure you're following me on social media using at Richie Flow Nutrition so you don't miss an episode. Thanks again, everyone. Take care.